Hello. Blog Talk Radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. So, welcome to another Wealth Psychology Show with Emily Bouchard. And today we have Gail Sylvia Pullen of Sylvia Global. Welcome, Gail. So wonderful to have you here. And we are co-hosting this show as we get to spend some time today with a, uh, a woman who I really deeply respect and admire and um, that we know our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of talking to and with and hearing from, and it's Deb Weatherby, and she is the CEO of Weatherby Asset Management, and she uh, is a woman that really walks her talk and is a acknowledged leader in the whole field of financial and wealth management and also um, is very involved um, in philanthropic endeavors and uh, comes from just a wealth of experience. And uh, we're very much looking forward to having you here, Deb, and talking about how you define success and also because this show really focuses on the emotional impact of wealth, how you interface with your clients around um, their values, your company's values, how to really make that uh, interaction between an advisor and a client be as successful as it can possibly be. So welcome to the show, Deb. Really happy to have you here. Thanks, Emily. I'm happy to be here. Great. And Gail, Sylvia, I want to check in with you for a minute because um, you did something really exciting last week in terms of um, your uh, the Women Moving Millions. So I wanted to find out what you're hearing is on the mind of women that are in leadership roles and care a lot about uh, philanthropic endeavors as well um, to make sure that this conversation is very relevant to their concerns, their questions, their passions. Oh, thanks, Emily. Hi, Deb. I'm Hi, Gail. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we, again, appreciate your not only being available this morning, but, you know, your support for Sylvia Global and broadcasts like the Wealth, Psycholo- Wealth Psychology Program. And um, the feedback has been incredible. So we're quite honored to have you um, here with us today. Now, last Thursday, I had the wonderful opportunity to co-host in Beverly Hills a luncheon with Lorreen Arbus, a fellow member of Women Moving Million, and then um, J.P. Morgan. And then I also um, made reference to and gave credit to Deb Weatherby and Weatherby Asset because I think that one of the things that women um, with you know want to be able to do with their money is be philanthropic leaders. But finding our voice, um, accepting the, you know, stepping into that power um, comes from different levels of experiences and types of experiences. And so a lot of the feedback that followed um, or occurred during the luncheon centered around questions associated with, you know, I've always wanted to, you know, give in a bigger and bolder way to a cause important to me, um, how do I find those and vet those causes? You know, how do I, um, who do I work with as an advisor to help me align our family values with our philanthropic contributions? And it was quite nice to be able to say, you know, there's this lady <laughs> Deb Weatherby you might want to talk to because um that's what that's a part of what she and her team do and she walks the talk. You know, she's very philanthropic as well. So we had a, a real diverse group of attendees. Um uh, some have you know, in the entertainment industry, um, some in the you know, of 
um, inherited their wealth and they're the next generation of decision makers for their family's money. And then there were others who um, married into the wealth, and even though they were a part of the marriage because the wealth was accumulated, um, they were, their role on a day-to-day basis was as a stay-at-home mom. And so there was a, a different level of um, value to ladies in that position because it helped them to understand um, not only the role and the significance of being a mom, but that they still had a part in um, the accumulation of the wealth and have a voice, you know, to be able to express where they'd like to see that money go and to help causes important to women and girls. Uh, and so there were relationships that were also established there. One um, lady made a con- needed a connection around her interest in brain research because of some um, challenges within her family. And there was um, a lady from Canada that's a new member of Women Moving Million that supports brain research in partnership with Harvard. And they connected immediately. So lots of wonderful networking um, from a very diverse group of women that reflect the diversity of women all around the world. And it was very exciting. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. And, Deb, I know one of the things um, that I want to make sure our listeners hear is that um, we can totally dive into this conversation around um, philanthropy uh, specifically. And I'm almost thinking that's going to be another conversation, another another show, uh, to really dive into that one facet and um, want to really uh, expand out listeners' views and listening in terms of all that, uh, you know, your approach, this whole conversation around values is so key and important. And it's it's like a cornerstone of your you and how you live your life and how you treat the people that work with you. And I was so blown away when I walked into your office and the very first thing that greeted me was an acknowledgement of somebody who was in uh, your employee who for how they were espousing your values, not how much money they had under management. And I was wondering if uh, we could maybe start off this conversation a little bit about you and your background and what would make it so that uh, you would be heading up a firm that um, speaks about that, uh, you know, that really speaks into the the values coming first and being driven by values. Sure. Um, I the our core philosophy is that it's not about the money. It's about what you want money to do for you in your life. That money is just a tool. And so, for many of our clients, we are really wanting to understand what their goals and values are and making sure that what we're doing is in alignment with their goals and values. And part of the reason we're doing that is because I found over the course of my career that I wouldn't be happy unless I worked in a way that was in alignment with my own values. And it was really by trial and error and being in situations that weren't in alignment with my values that I discovered how important they were to me. And, uh, you know, when I started my firm, what I was going for was nirvana. You know, everything that I thought, uh, creating everything that I thought uh, was the way it should be. And and really, uh, you know, designing a whole system and a culture and a process of serving clients that was in alignment with the way I believed clients should be served. And that included uh, no conflicts of interest, sitting on the same side of the table as them, uh, you know, having an environment that involved teamwork and collaboration rather than having internal competition. So 
uh, all of those things were things that I realized uh, over the course of my career. And part of it was my upbringing. Uh, you know, I come from a large family, and that family had very strong uh values about trust and integrity and teamwork and collaboration. Um, Part of it was my CPA background, uh, where as a CPA, you are taught to have no conflicts of interest and be objective and sit on the same side of the table as the client. Um, And part of it comes from being on Wall Street where uh, you see brilliant minds and brilliant investment strategies, but you also see that sometimes the compensation system can uh, distort people's incentives. And um, I really wanted to create a system that was all the things I loved about Uh, my experience early in my career and none of the things that really bothered me and and felt like they were inappropriate. And so, you know, I got to, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to do that uh, in 1990. And, um, you know, one of the things as part of that was to really make sure that the culture was was a place where I would want to come to work every day, where you're surrounded by people that you care about and respect, you're doing work for clients that you feel good about, you're always operating with integrity, and everything you do is really in alignment with what you believe in. So there's you, no this is, dissonance. This is really inspiring. And one of the things I know that matters to people that listen and uh, to our clients as well, because we do, uh, when we work with people to look at the, the the world they want to design, like you're describing so vividly how to take your values and what matters to you and to to design something that would to speak to you on so many levels in terms of working there, in terms of the people you'd be working with, in terms of how you can be of service. And that came directly out of your core values. And that's something we do, especially with inheritors that are, um, you know, they're in this position that they can do anything. And they're looking at, wow, what's my role as a steward of the wealth I have and my family's values going forward? And how do I also make sure that this moves forward with my values and what matters to me? How can those be in alignment? And one of the things that's useful for people is to hear um, more of the family stories. And I don't know if you'd be willing to maybe share something about, uh, you know, a, a story from your childhood, from your past, in your family that uh, demonstrates, illustrates to our listeners where some of these values really came into play that you're talking about, that strong sense of um, integrity and trust and teamwork and collaboration. I mean, with a large family, I'm, I bet you have a couple of stories. <laughs> Yeah, uh you know there's there are lots of stories. Um you know, my parents were big on responsibility and personal responsibility and uh one of the stories my sister likes to tell is uh we were all going skiing as a family and um we got to the ski resort and my sister said uh, where are my skis? And my dad said, well, did you put them in the car? And she said, no, I I thought you were doing that for me. And he said, well, I guess you're not going to ski today. And uh, Oh, everybody who's listening needs to take a breath because it's like, <laughs> wow, as a parent to allow your child to have the pain of that experience is so profound and so hard to do. Wow, what was that like? And she was the oldest of, you know, five kids, and all of the rest of us had put our own skis in the car, you know, but she had kind of expected someone else 
to do it for her and and my dad said uh you know i'm my my the way my sister tells the story is you know i never forgot that lesson where i'm sitting in the lodge and everyone else is skiing and i realize it was my own doing that you know if if i want to have a certain outcome i need to take responsibility and uh you know it 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 sounds a little harsh but when you think about it in the scheme of her whole life and our whole lives you know it it was a fairly easy way to teach her to take responsibility for herself rather than sort of enabling her to, you know, let someone else do for her or to have the expectation that others would do for her. There's a couple of other things, too. One, all of her siblings witnessed it. So he did this one thing and everybody got that lesson to one degree or another. And the other that makes it not so harsh is I don't hear from you that in any way he berated her, he drilled the lesson in, you know, he just stated the reality. So she got the natural experience of the consequences of what she chose to do or not do without him then jumping in and, you know, dictating to her what she now is going to understand. It's like she got to have the whole experience and that takes away the harshness. It's more of a uh, oh, this is how life works. And, you know, you can certainly have compassion for, oh, bummer, we would have loved to have skied with you. You know, that could be added in to, to make it a little bit softer. But, my gosh, how nice to be able to give somebody the opportunity to have their life experience and their lesson and not tell them. And, Gail, Sylvia, do you have something you want to say? Well, Jill, I just think that um, there's a lot in that, you know, that experience, um, not only for your sister and her siblings, but as parents, um, you know, especially I think even more so now nowadays than generations past, you know, we are so accustomed to wanting to not make our children uncomfortable, you know, and wanting them to, like I said, parents, you know, like I didn't think that that sound like a harsh lesson, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, I, I actually applaud your parents and I'm curious if your dad noticed the skis weren't in the car when he was packing up and just left them, or if he, you know, letting, expecting her to go get them. Or, but I think that uh, one of the biggest messages that, um, from what you just shared to ladies that were at the luncheon that I was at last week was, you know, so often um, there are situations where um, values are shifting within a family or in society and when our children are experiencing peer pressure and, you know, other issues within a family that there are still lessons and opportunities to help make them strong and to have a set of values put in place that are lifelong. And that was a real wonderful illustration of it. And it might be uncomfortable at the moment, but it's a lot um, I'll save a lot more discomfort later in life, you know, with bigger yeah. responsibilities. The the other thing that my parents said repeatedly was, you can complain about something once, but if you don't then start to do something about it, you lose your right to complain. So their whole thing was, you know, you can't be a serial complainer if you're not really doing something to try to make it different. And, you know, that right to complain is sometimes really valuable. And so uh, it, it really taught us, you know, if we want to hold on to that, you know, you have to then uh, think about solutions to things versus just staying in the, you know, complaining about the problem phase. And uh, it made us all very, um, you know, willing to think about 
you know, life as a process and a journey, and you do encounter obstacles along the way, but, you know, your part of living your life is is to figure out uh, how to manage those obstacles along the way. And I, I want to make sure our listeners know that you're speaking um, from your childhood because we asked for that, and you're also a mother. And how many children do you have? I have three children and, and three grandchildren. So. Ah! And what would they say if they were on this in terms of how these values got transferred to them? Were there ways in which it was hard for you to, uh, you know, give them those lessons in those ways where you knew that they were going to experience pain or did you draw on this? Or, you know, you're a mom dealing with this on that side too. And I know a lot of our listeners are raising children at different ages um, in this day and age where a lot is given to children, like Gail Sylvia was saying, and where there may be um, different poles from different uh, the, the culture expectations. And can you speak a little bit about how you navigate that with your children and what they would say about it? I I think the hardest thing as a parent is to let your children learn the lessons they need to learn. And you know I think uh, it's hard to see your kids. Uh, you know, suffering or struggling with a problem. And I think the natural tendency is to want to help them fix it. And, you know, that's been a challenge for me because, you know, by nature, I'm a fixer. I, you know, I like to help and I, you know, want things to be better. And I, you know, that's what I do in my work is I help clients around their wealth. And so it's natural that I would want to help my kids. And I've really had to curb that impulse because sometimes helping is disabling rather than enabling. You know, if you're trying to build self-reliance and self-sufficiency, so the challenge for me as a parent has been to not fix, but to instead say, you are capable, you can figure this out, you'll be okay, you know, to to not give them the answer, but to, to really give uh, clues and uh, allow them to find their path. So it's I, I think yeah. my parents were better at that than I was, uh, but they would say that you know just the pure volume of children sort of forced them <laughs> into a different yeah. strategy than uh, yeah. you know than my own. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when I'm working with parents, especially parents of um, teenagers, uh, one of the the phrases that I give to them that seems to help them get a little bit of relief and to know, okay, is the sense of being willing to be hated. You know, there's a sense of, okay, in the moment you could hate me for this, I get it, and, you know, I know that we're going to get through it too. Like, there's a way in which allowing yourself in those moments to have your children be really unhappy and have it look like it's about you can make it so you can be, oh, you know, this is really valuable. And I wonder, have your have your children come to you and said, wow, you know, I really, it was so hard for me when you did this such and such in the past, but wow, you know, I really see how important that's been for me, like how your sister was with the skis? Oh, definitely. Um you know, my my older son did a gap year, and uh, you know, my rule for the gap year was it had to be planned. And uh, you know, he did not like that idea of having a plan for it, but he he did make a plan, and it ended up being wonderful for him. And the interesting thing was. The part 
that was the most wonderful was not what he expected, but was a segment that he kind of put in as a filler because he had to have a plan. And so, um, you know, he came back to me afterwards and said, you know, that was just such an incredible experience, and I'm really glad you had that uh, rule that it had to. I had to have a plan because oh yeah, that's recognized example. that it could have uh, the time could have just sort of drifted away, and he wouldn't have had the same experience. So I I'd love to share one of the things that a friend shared with me about that really helped me during my kids' teen years. Um, oh, please, yes. So she uh, gave me this visual. If you've ever, under a microscope, seen a cell divide, what happens is the molecules line up in two rows, and then they bump against each other to figure out where to divide, like where one ends and the next begins. And then they divide, you know, after all this uh, bumping against each other. And what my friend said was that that is what teenagers are doing, is they're bumping up against you to figure out where you end and they begin. And so all of that conflict... uh, you know, which really helped me when they were teenagers, I realized, oh, this is what they're supposed to be doing. They're individuating, and they're supposed to be figuring out where I end and where they begin. And yeah, the only way they can that's do so, it is yeah. is by bumping up against the limits and against me. And so yeah. then that, you know, really helps you be take it less personally. Yes, and one of the things that um, is so useful is to be that consistent parent um, where they know when they bump up against it, it's going to stay solid because they actually need that um, for their own sense of uh, security during this very uncertain time in their lives. And uh, the image I give for parents around that is consider yourself as being like a steel wall. Like these, these boundaries that I'm giving you are very solid, but with a velvet lining. So there's this softness around it. It's not that harsh like you were we were talking about earlier. It's mm-hmm. you know you can have that empathy and support. And I know it's hard. I I get that you'd like it to be different, and I'm holding firm. Like that is such a wonderful balance of the two, and really great wisdom. I love where these conversations go. You just never know. That's <laughs> so great. And um, I was wondering about the integrity piece because it's such a huge component of your work. And um, before uh, oh, we have questions coming in too, <laughs> so maybe maybe while we get these questions together, um, you could share just a little bit about um, something to do with integrity from your life that's really informed you in terms of uh, your work with your clients. Because that piece about not wanting to be seen as having a conflict of interest is huge for our listeners, for anybody working with an advisor. Like, are you looking out for me and my best interest, or is this going to be serving you? Like, how how has that played out for you? Well, I, I guess my notion always has been um, I want to serve clients in the way I would want to be served if I was sitting in their chair. And when I think about you know, what's important to me in the people that I work with as professional advisors, you know, trust and integrity is is top of the list. You you just have to know that uh, they are worthy of the trust that you put in to them. And so, you know, here when we hire people, we we hire one of our hiring criteria is around values because i feel like it's much easier to teach skills than it is to teach values in an adult um you know values tend to be created over life experience and 
if if integrity doesn't show up for people as one of those cornerstone things by the time they're an adult, you know, it's hard in a work situation, you know, to to teach that. But I can teach someone, you know, uh, to reconcile or to learn about the markets. You know, those those things are much easier to teach than than personal integrity, than feeling like you want to get up every day and do work that you're proud of. You want to go to bed feeling like, uh, you know, everything you've done, you feel good about. So, oh, this is yeah, this is great. I'm going to um, interrupt for just a second. I want to make sure uh, we have uh, some questions coming in, and we want to make sure that people who are listening live can call in and ask their questions at three four seven. Two one five six one three eight. We're listening to Deb Weatherby, who is the um, wow, the founder and the uh, CEO of Weatherby Asset Management, a uh, asset firm uh, that is really focused on uh, managing by values and supporting their clients and really living from their values and having their money in their lives be a tool that supports them even further in what it is that what matters most to them. And, Deb, this is such a rich and wonderful conversation. Thank you for being here. And um, I want to know more about how you ascertain those values. I have a question here for you from a listener, and it's um, based on uh, Liz from Santa Monica, and she wants to know um, where you direct your philanthropy and how you decide um, what, what really works for you, like why you chose what you chose, and how engaged directly are you in your philanthropy? Um, do you write checks? Do you dive deeply uh, both and? Uh, and I know this is a subject that's really near and dear to your heart. And one of the things that when Deb and I were talking about this show, we both felt really power- uh, it, it was important to emphasize that while um, Deb can certainly share her experiences, we honor that each person who's listening has their values and what matters to them. And uh, it's so much about where and how you want to put your attention, not about um, doing what, um, like, like do this versus something else. It's not about that at all. And uh, Deb, would you be willing to share a little bit about your uh, your approach to philanthropy and what you've discovered along the way? Yeah, I absolutely uh, am happy to share with a disclaimer that. Uh, this is my journey, and <laughs> I don't expect it to be everyone's. Um, so I I would expect the things that are that I'm passionate about and that resonate with me um, will be different than uh, what someone else's is. And as you know, Emily, I'm one of the things that's really important to me is that people have their own definition of success that uh, is really tied to their own passions and values. And so in sharing mine, I don't in any way want to convey that it's the answer or the right thing, um, but it it is what I'm passionate about. So my work is really in two areas. Um, I uh, my biggest area is global poverty, and uh, I feel uh, that it's unjust that uh, some people live with so little when others live with so much, and I uh, really. And passionate about creating more opportunity for people who currently don't have access to opportunity. So I'm involved in a lot of things where they are programs that uh, teach people to fish rather than give away fish, um, because I'm a I'm a real believer in. Uh, that it, if you give people access to opportunity, that that they will find their way to where they want to 
want to go. So global poverty is one area, and then in particular, um, I do a fair amount of work with um, women and girls uh, because of the girl effect, which basically says that uh, if you invest in women and girls, you have a faster, greater impact in terms of making changes in communities. And I've been quite involved in a movement that Eve Ensler started to eradicate violence against women and girls called V-Day. And I recently went to the Democratic Republic of Congo to visit a project I've been involved with called City of Joy uh, that um, helps women survivors of rape and torture, um, gives them skills training, counseling, uh, leadership, uh, you know, technology, tools, um, and helps them recover so that they can go back into the community and help other women survivors. So I use all the tools that I have available, so uh, money is one of them, but I like to think of the tools as time, treasure, talent, and networks. And what I like to think about is, uh, you know, in any particular situation, what, what, which of those can I apply to have the greatest impact? So it may not always be money. It may be me sitting on a board or... It may be me making connections for people that has a greater impact than writing a check. Deb, how did this become, this is Gail Sylvia, um, what was your first experience that kind of opened your eyes to, you know, global thinking in terms of poverty eradication in women and girls? Um, well, my family lived in Ireland when I was a child for four years, and um, so I I have always thought more globally. I've I've always um, understood that you know while the U.S. is wonderful and I love living here, that um, we're part of a a bigger system on the planet, and so um, for me, I've that's I think come from living outside the United States for part of my childhood and seeing, you know, we've always traveled a fair amount and seeing uh, a lot of different environments, and um, you know. If you go to a place where there are people that live on less than a dollar a day, uh, you you recognize the the needs in some places are life or death needs, and the needs in uh, in other places are more quality of life needs and. I'm drawn to work on the more life or death needs because I feel like smaller amounts of money can have a much bigger impact in the system. And that's not to say that quality of life needs aren't worthy. They are. You know, I I think everything is worthy. It's just, you know, what I'm particularly drawn to. Well, it seems like your work, your, what you do for your clients is really addressing quality of life needs on many levels. So you're kind of uh, allowing your skills, talents, abilities to be expressed in that way in the domain of work, and then your philanthropic giving um, allows you to address the, those uh, life and death needs on a much greater uh, impact. Uh, Dale, Sylvia, it sounds like you were going to say something. Yeah, it sounds uh, to me... Deb, that it's also a way of keeping your own life balanced. You know, that there's this power 
full experience associated with giving, but there's this even more profoundly powerful experience associated with receiving. And what I've found is that when I go into circumstances and environments where people can still express abundant joy, and especially in parts of Africa, you know, where the kids come running up to you as a complete stranger, smiling and singing, and they have they live on so much less than we have here, and I, I may go there um, thinking I'm giving them something or I'm coming to help them, but my own spirit ends up being nurtured and my own life seems to get recalibrated in terms of priorities and importance um, from just being in their presence and making myself available to be in their presence. Have you, do you know what I'm referring to? Have you had similar experiences? Absolutely. I, I think for me there have been two lessons to my work in places like Africa. One is the incredible resilience mm-hmm. of the people in those environments. I'm I'm you know, inspired and in awe of the resilience they have to deal with the circumstances they deal with and get up every day and, you know, continue to work to make it different. And the the other thing that I have witnessed and learned from is that their joy is unconnected to materialism and mm-hmm. So when you talk about a different definition of success, you know, their definition of success, you know, isn't a, uh, you know, keeping up with the with the Joneses uh, idea or a, uh, you know, I have to have the, you know, next car or cell phone or whatever. It's really, uh, you know, f- family and community and you know, yes, they want to uh, have basic, uh, their basic needs met, but, uh, you know, beyond that, their happiness and joy and song and dance is not as connected to materialism as we connect ours here Mm. in the Western world. And Mm. I I think perhaps one of the silver linings of the 08 financial crisis is that it caused people to really reevaluate their priorities and question this idea that you know really came out of World War II that consumption was linked to happiness, you know that you could you know shop your way to happiness, I think it caused people to really question that and think about a different definition of success that involves relationship and family and community as well as, uh, you know, having their needs met. And, you know, if if that... Uh, is an outcome of 08, then, you know, how how bad things can also have a gift embedded in them. You know, perhaps that's the gift that was embedded mm-hmm. in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Deb, would you be willing to speak a little bit more about the concept of success, the definition of success? I We had a text come in about um, wanting to know more about because you referred to it a couple of times. Uh, could you speak into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I I really feel that in some ways we let society define success for us, and uh, it, it tends to be defined by um, wealth, title, and power. And I really think... For most people, success is broader than that. And, uh, you know, I I think again about my dad who, you know, 
when he passed away, he felt like he was a rich man, not because he had a lot of money, but because he had, you know, a very close-knit family. He had a rich community of friends. He, uh, you know, was surrounded by people who loved him. And even though he did not have a lot of financial wealth, he had more than he felt he personally needed and more than he ever expected to have. And so, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, success isn't, uh, for most people, you know, when you look back on your life, it 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 isn't the bank account, the title, the power that, that creates the most meaning. It and so, you know, why we allow society to link success to that, I I'm not sure. But one of the things that I encourage people to do is to really think about what success is for them and, you know, when they look back on their lives, what will have made it a a rich, successful life, you know, and it's probably more family and relationship and community and, you know, having had a sense of purpose and giving back in the world than it is about a bank balance. And so, uh, you know, I'm passionate about this particular topic because I feel like we have allowed society to place undue importance on a narrow set of things to the exclusion of a broader set of things that that really, at the end of the day, bring us a lot more meaning and satisfaction. Deb, how much of your... um how much importance do you find your clients placing on or realigning or shifting perhaps their own values and getting more clarity based on what they learn and see and experience with in association with you and your representatives? Or do, um, does it not, not necessarily touch? Well, I I think um everybody's at a different place in their journey and you know you have to want to uh sort of engage in the values work. So for us with clients, you know, it's an invitation rather than a requirement. So you know if if people if people want to engage in that conversation about uh you know how to incorporate their values more broadly in their lives you know we we love that but we recognize also that uh for some people they aren't at the point where they want to engage in that conversation. And our relationship with them is much more about making sure they know they have enough to meet their own needs and and to meet the goals that they have in terms of their legacy within their family. And perhaps a legacy more broadly in the world. And so... Um, you know it's it's a choice that people have we don't we don't force every client to engage in a deeper conversation but we do invite them to and um you know some accept that invitation and some uh really you know are at a different are at a different spot and that's okay well, I would imagine that given that that's what you lead from, you would you would um, attract clients that would enjoy that conversation as well. And 
Uh, Gail, Sylvia, we have a, a listener on the line that wanted to uh, make a comment. Can, uh, do you want to say your thought now or can you have her speak in a minute or can we have her come forward and then... We'll have her come forward now. So it's Barbara Joe from Austin. Barbara Joe, welcome to the Well Psychology Show. And um, you have a question or comment for Deb? Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> I really am delighted to hear the values with which she outreaches into the community. I am a dance movement therapist and have worked for years in many capacities with adolescents. And at this point in my life, one of the greatest um, wealthiest experiences I have is doing outreach for a local dance company with foster girls and of course there's multiple abuses and issues that they face but the most important gift I feel that I've given them in relation to in reference to the work that you do is that I feel like I give them back or help them find their own bodies as a place that is theirs that that's their home and that they can trust their body as a safe place that they can retreat to for wisdom and information and then from there find safe people that they can connect with um, at least in that venue in a in a safe and rewarding way and you know if they can have that inner trust and wisdom then they can engage in the community and know that they're worthy to um, take uh, advantage of some of the assets that, that you're speaking about that they can move forward and create a new life so I'm delighted to hear about the value base from which you work and that you also address that there's many, many kinds of wealth. And that's certainly something that I count as a great asset in my life. Well, thanks, Barbara Joe. It sounds like you're doing wonderful work. Thank you. Very, I would like very inspiring. Yeah, I would like to find more ways to grow it and make that larger and have that make more income, but um, I'm still sticking with it where it is. We do have a little bit of a larger grant this year. I had an extremely large grant in the past, but I didn't have the community support I needed to for the amount of risk that I was taking. But um, it is my hope that it will expand both in its effect and in its capacity to generate income. Well, and it sounds like you're bringing forward your uh, what Deb was saying earlier in terms of the time, the talent, and your treasure, and then the networks and how important it is to have a whole community supporting that. And whether it's local in your own personal community where you can bring your skills and talents to bear for that or whether it's on a global scale like what Deb was saying, however you feel moved is so vitally important to... Uh, feel like you are empowered to take those kinds of actions. So this is really fantastic. Um, we are. Uh, we have another listener from. Thank you so much, Barbara Joe, uh, letting us know you're on and bringing your comment to the show. We have a listener from San Diego, California, um, and she was just wondering. And I guess that that was a miss on our part, Deb. She wants to know where your office is. <laughs> where are you located? Because I I think it's important for listeners to know that you cover the country in a sense because you're on both coasts. Yes, we have an office in San Francisco and an office in New York, and we do have clients um, all over the country. Um, and the idea of having one on each coast is that we're within an uh, easy day trip of anywhere in the country. So we do have uh, clients in Southern California uh, as well as all over. Uh, and um, what's the best way for people to learn more about you and uh, contact you and learn about Weatherby Asset Management? So we do have a website. Um, it's weatherby.com, and there's no A in Weatherby. Um, and then uh, we have email contact through our website, um, or uh, you could email me, which is deb at weatherby.com. Great. Wow. And, you know, the fact that you exist, that people know that there are financial advisors that they can talk to on this level. And um, I was wondering if you might, oh, wait, we have a question coming in from Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, what kind of um, criteria do you have for people that would want to um, access you, use your services, um, 
you know, we've talked a lot about values, but that's not a requirement. It's uh, something that, that, do you have any requirements, criteria? We do. Um, you know, we have a relatively high minimum size that we work with, really because we don't want our practice to grow too large because we're so hands-on with clients. And so our our minimum client is $10 million, but we if somebody contacts us and has less than our minimum we'll help them find someone that we know and trust uh that uh works with smaller minimums so oh, that's uh, if, great. if you have a question and you don't uh meet our minimum you know we'd be happy to help help you find someone that's appropriate and do you work with um like uh, families that maybe have a foundation that they want those assets managed or families that have, let's say, um, shared holdings and um, trust where multiple family members are involved, um, or do you work more with individuals? Uh, Yes to all, I guess. (laughs) Uh, We have a lot of clients that are multi-generational families. Um, We have a lot of clients who have foundations and donor-advised funds, and we have a number of clients who are nonprofits or foundations and endowments themselves stand alone um and so uh could you, you know, describe I, a little bit about the services that you and there's no surprise there about your list of clientele that's fantastic. Can you describe a little bit about your services? We're um getting ready to wind down, and I want to make sure people know what are the things you do for these clients. So, uh, you know, the core of what we do is understand the client, understand the markets, and understand the investment choices that are out there and then design an investment strategy that's appropriate for them given what their goals and objectives are. So at the core, we're managing investment portfolios but we're doing it in the context of really understanding what the client's goals and objectives are and how we can support and enable them in achieving their goals and objectives very broadly. So how much do they want for themselves? What do they need for and want for their heirs? And what do they want to do in a greater sense in the world? Okay, and how well, this can is we support and enable that? There's so much here, and I want make, to make sure people know that they can definitely get more information from you by contacting Deb at weatherby.com, uh, and it's W-E-T-H-E-R-B-Y. And uh, Gail, Sylvia, I know you have a closing comment you want to give to Deb, and then we want to make sure that we um, do our evocative question, inspiring invitation, and useful tools. Absolutely. I just want the audience to be aware that Deb uh, and Weatherby Asset Managements were, you know, one of the first to support the First Ladies of Influence Tour, the Global Call to Action on Women and Girls' Health, and to step up, you know, to this global arena around giving women and girls a voice and the positive work like that of Eve Insler and, and many others that are lesser known around the world through Sylvia Global. And Deb, I just want to publicly thank you again um, for, for for recognizing the value and hearing um, the important voices coming from around the world and a platform for them to engage. So thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. And Great. Emily, I'll turn it back over to you. Great show. Thank you. This was fantastic. I can't believe how fast this hour went. We want to make sure our listeners have our evocative question, which is, what is your definition of success? And we want to give you an inspiring invitation to look and see what brings you the most meaning in your life and what values you hold most dear. And also, here are some useful tools for you. Deb, you were generous enough to give some of these that we have available to listeners. One is 45 Lessons Taught to Me by Regina Brett. Uh, I never know how to pronounce this. Desiderata, a poem Desiderata. for a way of life. Desiderata, a poem for a way of life by Max Ehrman. 
and A Philosophy of Life by Robert Mondavi. These are all inspiring words of wisdom that you provide, and we wanted to make sure everybody knew that they could have access to those. You can email us at info at wealthlegacygroup.net for those uh, copies of those words of wisdom. Thank you so much, Deb Weatherby, for being our guest on Wealth Psychology. Next week, we have Gail Sylvia joining us. We're going to be talking more in depth about her experience at the Women Moving Millions Luncheon and more. Thank you so much, Deb. It's a, such a pleasure, and we're definitely having you back on to talk more about um, all the different ways you make a difference in the world. Thank you. And thank Thanks you, Liz, for having for me. all of your input. Yeah. It's a total pleasure. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest.